My wife just said something funny to, uh, to Liz. Um, I'll tell you about it. My, eight years ago, I had my prostate removed because I had prostate cancer and everything was fine. I was like zero, no PSA, everything was good. And then about four years ago, this little PSA started showing up again and they figured it was in the prostate bed. So in order to kill that and sort of eradicate the, the cancer, they decided that they wanted to do radiation. And I said, sure. So beginning on September the 2nd until this past Friday, um, I, I've been going for radiation every single morning. And uh, praise God, and I was just thinking about God's faithfulness, uh, no side effects, no impact, no you know, negative consequences, except I am just so tired. <laughs> Cindy says, all he does is yawn and sleep. And, and then he just, she just said to, to Liz, um, you know, he's put lots of people to sleep in his preaching, but I've never actually seen him fall asleep. This will be interesting. So if I do fall asleep during this sermon, can, just, can you come and just nudge me? I'd appreciate that. That would be, be a real help. Um, as a pastor, I have been asked many times over the almost 40 years that I've been in ministry by people who are concerned about their salvation, how can I know that I am truly saved? How can I know that I am in Christ, that my salvation is, is genuine? And I think that it's a question that all serious Christians ask themselves, and if we don't, we should. The, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.5 encourages the Corinthians to test themselves, to examine themselves to see if they are in the faith. Um, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he talks about the importance of um, testing ourselves to see if we are actually Christians, to see if we are in Christ. So this process of self-examination, I think, is absolutely critical for Christians, because there are many pseudo-Christians in the church, and Jesus predicted this, that the wheat and the tares will exist side by side in the kingdom of God until the end. And at that time, a lot of pseudo-Christians will hear the most terrifying words that will ever fall on anyone's ears. And these words are the words of Jesus. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. So I think one of the most critical responsibilities that any preacher of the gospel has is to help his congregation understand the necessity of self-examination, asking this question, and then of equal importance is helping them to answer the question, yes, I am in Christ. And so at the end of this service, we have backloaded a bunch of the worship to the end of the service. And at the end of the service, it is my prayer that your heart will just be filled with joy as you worship the Lord, knowing that he has indeed saved you. And if there is anyone here who hasn't got that confidence, hasn't got that assurance, I would be more than happy. I know that Paul and the other elders and staff, uh, Mark and others, would be more than happy to sit down with you and wrestle this issue through. Because as I say, it is the issue between heaven and hell. It is the, the most critical issue that we can deal with. So I'd just like to pray and ask God to bless us as we turn our attention to his word. Father God, I pray that you would give me um, your grace this morning to say what I believe you have laid on my heart to say 
with wisdom and clarity. Lord, I am frail, I am weak, I am inadequate to the task, so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill me and that you would use me for your honor and for your glory. I pray that your word would accomplish all that you intend for it to accomplish this morning, and that most of all, Lord Jesus, you would be given the highest place and the highest praise in this place and in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. One of the problems with this issue is that there is no um, specific passage in the Bible that says, here is the test to know whether you are a Christian or not. Here is the test for examining yourself. There's not, no definitive tests. But there are many passages in the Scripture, and one of those passages that really helps us is Philippians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn there, and we're going to read from verse 6 following <clears throat> through verse 11. Paul makes a statement of absolute confidence and assurance about the spiritual condition of the people to whom he is writing. And this is what he says. I am sure of this. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Paul begins, as I said, with a statement of absolute confidence and assurance about the spiritual condition of the men and women of the Philippian church. He knows beyond any shadow of a doubt that the jailer, that Lydia, that the slave girl, that Clement, that Iodia and Syntyche, despite the fact that they are struggling with sin, he knows that they are in Christ. He knows that when their life ended, they would not hear, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. They would hear from the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. He was convinced that God who had began a good work in them would complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That word complete is an important word. It means to perfect, to bring to an end, to accomplish, and to finish, to finish the work. So the question that we would ask ourselves then, having read that, is what was it that gave Paul such absolute confidence? What was it that gave Paul such a, an absolute assurance that these people were in Christ? I think the next verse gives us a little bit of an answer. He says this in verse 7. It's right that I feel this way about you because it's, it's only right that I feel what I feel towards you regarding your spiritual condition because. And that little because there, that little conjunction ties that idea that he, that he, he initiates in verse 6 to the rest of the passage. So what I, what I have done is, is looked at this passage from that perspective. Why is Paul so confident? Why is Paul so sure that God, having begun this good work in the lives of the Philippians, will, will finish it? And he gives us evidences about the saving work of Christ in their lives. 
So what should we be looking for in our lives personally? That will give us an absolute, unequivocal, bold confidence that we are in fact in Christ. And what should we not be looking for? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just as we begin, I want to say this. What you're not going to see in this passage of Scripture is anything about responding to an altar call. There is nothing in here about a profession of faith or correct theology or the guilt and the shame and the regret for sin or an emotional, ecstatic, spiritual experience. There's nothing in here about church membership. There's nothing in here about baptism. And there's nothing in here about the sinner's prayer. All of those things are important. None of those things are bad things. But it's interesting that Paul never encourages the Philippians to hang their eternal destiny on any of that. There are some of these things that masquerade in modern evangelicalism as genuine evidences for genuine faith. And I I guess what I want to say is this, that I don't believe that. I don't believe that because I don't think the Bible teaches that. What Paul does in this passage of Scripture is he gives us four evidences. Four evidences that I think, and, and they are not, this is not an exclusive list. So when you go to 1 Peter and Peter says, make sure about his calling and choosing of you, he gives us a different list. There are other places in the Bible that we need to go, but here are four that were critical to the Apostle Paul who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Four evidences that demonstrate to us that we are in Christ. So what was God doing in the lives of these Philippian Christians that allowed Paul to speak with such confidence? First of all, he was giving them, one, the grace to suffer. The grace to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul begins by affirming his love for them in verse 7. Read it with me. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul says, I love you. I hold you in my heart. I have a deep affection for you. And then he tells them why he loves them. He says, you are all partakers with me of grace. You are all, every single one of you, in Philippi, are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. I want you to notice two things. First, the word partakers here, interestingly, is that same word koinonia, fellowship, that he translates as partnership in verse 5. Remember that from last week? That is the same word fellowship. Now, what he does here, he adds a prefix with. And so he talks about them being <clears throat> partakers with or sharers with him in grace. And he says, I love you because you are sharing with me in my sufferings for the gospel. But he uses the word grace here not to describe saving grace or the grace of God that brings us to Christ. He's talking about a grace that sustains us. A grace that allows us to suffer. A grace that allows us to stand for the gospel and suffer for the gospel. The continuing, ongoing grace of God in our lives. 
If there's anybody who understood this, it was the Apostle Paul. By this time, he had been a Christian for almost 30 years, by the time he wrote the book of Philippians. And he had suffered for the gospel. He had suffered horribly for the gospel. We don't have to go into a long, detailed explanation, but he had been in prison. He had been beaten. He had been shipwrecked. He had been scorned. He had been rejected by his family. And the list could go on and on and on. And all of that was because of his defense of the gospel and his confirmation of the gospel. And he knew Beyond any shadow of a doubt, his history told him that he had received time and time and time and time again, he had received the grace of God that allowed him to stand firm in the gospel, to be unashamed of the gospel, to defend the gospel, to confirm the truth of the gospel before Felix, before Agrippa. He had perhaps already met, we don't know, he had perhaps met Nero we don't know, but he had, he had had the boldness and the courage at the risk of his life to stand up and say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. The resurrection happened. God has intervened in history through the person of his son, Jesus, and I represent him boldly and proudly regardless of the cost. Paul knew that his suffering was enabled by grace. God had and was strengthening, emboldening, encouraging him and inspiring him to preach and defend and to suffer for the gospel. And so he says to the Philippians, I am convinced that God is going to complete what he has started in you because I can see in you the grace that is allowing you to stand for the gospel, to suffer for the gospel, to confirm the trustworthiness and truth of the gospel and to defend the gospel. You see, saving grace is confirmed in our lives when God gives us the enabling grace to stand boldly for Jesus and the gospel. To stand up, to speak, to suffer, and to sacrifice for the gospel. We looked at this passage last week. Flip your Bibles over to the next page and go to 28 and 29 of chapter 1. 29 and 30 of chapter 1. Paul says this in verse 28, for it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. That word granted there, it has been granted to you, it's the verbal form of grace. What he's basically saying is that God has graced you God has graced you with the capacity to not only believe in Jesus, but also to suffer with him and to participate in what I am going through when I was with you, you saw it, and now you hear about it in my prison in Rome. God has given you the same grace as he has given me, the same courage, the same boldness, the same unashamed courage to stand up and say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And I don't care what you do to me. I don't care that you put me in prison. I don't care that you beat me with rods. I don't care that you arrest me and ship me off to stand before the emperor. I don't care because I am a Christian. I am a follower of Christ. And Paul knew that he was doing that by grace. As he was saved by grace, he was doing that by grace. And to know that you're a Christian, the first thing he says to them, you can know, you can be sure, you can have confidence because you are unashamed of Jesus. You are unashamed of the gospel. 
So the question is, if God has truly graced us with the capacity to believe, he has also graced us with the capacity to be bold. So here's the question, are you? Are you courageous? Are you bold? Are you overt in your expressions about your loyalty and your love for Jesus? And I said it last week, and I say it a lot, I hear myself saying it a lot, because people will easily talk about God. We need to speak about Jesus, the Son of God, who loved you and gave his life for you. When we get that, when we understand who he is, what he has done for us, there is a bond of loyalty and allegiance and fealty that begins to grow in our hearts that allows us to say, I publicly and boldly and unashamedly, I love Jesus Christ because he first loved me. I believe his gospel because it has saved me. God puts that courage in us. He graces us not only to believe, but he graces us with the capacity to suffer for the gospel. Christians who are ashamed of Jesus need to wrestle with these words. Jesus says it twice, Mark, Luke, Mark, Luke, Mark 8, Luke 9. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in his glory. That's a pretty definitive, unequivocal statement. If we're ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us. So a Christian, therefore, someone who can say, yes, I am in Christ, is a person who understands what it means to stand up and suffer for the gospel if necessary. To own Christ. Secondly, He speaks about the affection of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So Paul has just affirmed his love for him. He's just said in the previous verse, I have you in my heart. He has affirmed his deep affection for him. So the question we should ask ourselves is, is he just repeating that? Is he just saying again, hey, I just want you to know again I love you? Or is he saying something else? And I personally think he's saying something else. I think in this verse, Paul is speaking about something is more, that is more than, than human love, human collegiality or warmth. He is talking about a deeper kind of love. He is speaking about loving them with the affections of Christ Jesus. Now that word affections is, is, is not one of the words that we think of when we think of love. It literally means guts. It means viscera. It means bowels. And that was in the ancient world sort of the seat of affection. And he says, Paul is saying, I love you with a, with a gut-level bond that was created and is now sustained by the person of Jesus Christ. This wasn't just sort of a surfacey kind of, hey, I like you guys, and, and you've been kind to me, and I, you know, I hope the best for you. This was a deep, visceral kind of relationship. This was a gut-level relationship that was welded together between Paul the pastor and the people of Philippi by the person of Jesus Christ. 
It's almost like Paul was saying, Jesus is loving you through me. So Paul, in a sense, is saying, I am the conduit of the love of Christ. Now, he uses this idea in other places. In, in, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about how he is a representative. He's an ambassador of Christ. And it's almost like God was compelling people through Paul to be reconciled to God. Paul talks about this idea quite a bit, that it is God, it is Christ, it is the Spirit moving through him to accomplish God's purposes in the world. And then he says this, I am praying that your love may abound more and more. And it's interesting, here he doesn't use that gut-level, visceral kind of love that he talked about in the previous phrase. He uses the word agape, which is that, we're all familiar with that word, that agape word. Agape was a very common Greek word, it meant love, but the Christians, trying to figure out a way to communicate the enormity of the love of Christ on the cross, co-opted this word. They said, we're going to take this word and we're going to redefine it and we're going to define it as the love of Christ. It is selfless, unconditional, absolute love that is willing to lay down one's life for me. And so Paul says, my prayer is that that kind of love, that kind of love would characterize your life as, as Christ loves you through me on a deep gut level, I want you to similarly love each other the way Christ has loved you. It's kind of the idea behind this beautiful passage of Scripture. Go over to chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 3, Paul is going to begin talking about the love of Jesus. And verse 3 says this, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves or as more important than yourself. See, there's that agape love lived out. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And how do I do this? Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God, something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and he went to the cross and he went to... You see, he's saying to us, if, if, if you're going to do what Christians do, your love, your relationship has got to be deep. It's got to be selfless. It's got to be sacrificial. It's got to put the other person first. It's got to reflect the character of the love of Christ. Christ-like love. And see, like, I don't know how to do that kind of love because naturally I'm selfish, right? That's, that's, that's a question that we would ask. How do I do that? How do I get there? And the only answer, I can, and, and, Paul, and that's what Paul uses here in, in chapter 2, the only answer is that we've got to spend time deeply thinking about appreciating and falling in love with what Jesus has done for us. The only thing that will ever produce in the life of a Christian the selfless, unconditional, life-laying-down kind of love that God expects to see in us is that we are profoundly impacted by the gospel. Because when the gospel impacts us, when we understand what Jesus has done for us, what God has done for us in Christ, it grips us. 
And it is motivating. It is catalytic. It allows us to begin to, in our lives, approximate the love that Jesus has shown to us. How are we known? By our love. Not just sort of warmth and affection, but by our agape. Our willingness to lay down our lives for each other. Our willingness to consider one another as being more important than myself. By being willing to serve. By willing to being last. By being willing to be wronged. By being willing to forgive. By being willing to give to others the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the love and the forgiveness that God has given to us in Christ. You see, that marks a Christian. That distinguishes us. Sets us apart. In, uh, I'll just, just read this, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, again, some pretty hard things that it's easy to gloss over. But here's, here's, he, just, he just taught his disciples how to pray. And then he says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. It's so easy to gloss something like that over, but what he is saying in that passage of Scripture is, listen, if you're a follower of mine, you're characterized by forgiveness. You don't hold grudges. You don't hold on to bitterness. Having received the grace of God, having received the love of and the mercy and the forgiveness of God, you show that. You are a conduit of God's grace. God pours forgiveness in. You pour it out. God pours love in. You pour it out. You become a conduit of his grace. So here's the question. Are you? Are you? I'm not saying perfectly. I'm not saying without flaw. But is that characteristic of your life? If it is, then I have every confidence that you are in Christ. If the gospel has changed your heart, the gospel has humbled you to the place where you see others as having more importance than yourself, where you're willing to serve, where, yeah, I'll lay down my life. I'll forgive. Yes, it was an egregious offense, but I, I will forgive. Well, how can you do that? Because of grace, because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done for me. He's poured it in. I can pour it out. See, that's what Paul was doing. He was loving them from the guts with the love of Christ, with the love of Jesus. He yearned for them with the affection of Christ. Thirdly, the courage of discerning love. Now, here's where I need to be careful, and I, I, I'll try to stay a little bit closer to my notes because I want to say, I want to say this carefully. He says in verse 9 again, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Next thing he says, he wants the Philippians, 
He wants their love to be tempered by knowledge and discernment. It is, it is my prayer, he says, that your love may abound still more and more, that, that the more that you're filled with Christ, the more that you're filled with the Spirit of God, the more that you're filled with love and mercy, I just want you to pour it out. But, but, I want you to do it with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent, so that you may test what is excellent. So here's my point. Unconditional love must have conditions. And I know that sounds like a contradiction, but unconditional love, agape love, Christ's love through us must have conditions. It must be tempered, it must be moderated by knowledge and all discernment. Christian love is not indiscriminate. It is not unconditional. It is not uncritical. Christian love has boundaries, limits, and parameters, just as God's love for me does. In our culture today, we hear the mantra that love is the greatest virtue. We are called to love unconditionally. We are called not to discriminate. Don't judge whether a behavior or an idea is worthy of love. Just love. Accept Tolerate, embrace, affirm, and live and let live. Live uncritically and love unconditionally. And sadly, I think many churches, many evangelical churches, have fallen into the trap, fallen into the lie. They used to believe, and probably still would affirm that they do believe, that God is love. But somehow that has morphed into the lie that love is God. And that's a dangerous place for any person or any church to be. It endangers our souls individually and endangers our church corporately. Acceptance and tolerance are seen in our culture now and in many churches as the highest value. The holiness of God has taken a back seat in the last 20, 30, 40 years. To tolerate to not be tolerant, to be intolerant, and to not affirm is seen as the most grievous of sins. But listen, here's the truth. God does not love me indiscriminately, nor does he love me unconditionally. And I know that we're fond of saying God loves us unconditionally. I don't believe that's true. He loves me because in Christ the conditions by which he might love me, have been met. God loves me because in Christ, the conditions that allow him to love me have been fully, eternally, and perfectly met by my Savior, his Son. So yet, God loves me conditionally because of Jesus. And because of what Christ has done, I am now accepted unconditionally because the conditions have been met by Christ. If it were not for Jesus and for his finished work on the cross, I would still be abhorrent to God. I would still be under his just and holy wrath right now. But today, 
I'm an object of his love. Not because of his indiscriminate or unconditional love, but because Christ has met the conditions that God set for me. All right? And if that is true of God, and it is, how much more must it be true of us? It is absolutely critical, according to the apostle here, that our love abound and that we love people and we consider them more important than ourselves, that we are the conduits of God's grace. When the most egregious, most horrific thing is done to us and we are inclined to be bitter, we remember the gospel. We remember what Christ has done for us and we become a conduit of love and forgiveness, right? So I'm I'm not undermining anything I've just said. But what Paul tells us in this passage of Scripture is that we must approve, the word here is test, examine, scrutinize the genuineness of what is excellent in order to be pure and blameless. You see, we must have knowledge and all discernment in order to test, in order to adjudicate, in order to truly know what is worthy of love if we are to be holy people. And so the question is, where do we get this wisdom from? How is it that we know? How is it that we have that knowledge? Or how is it that we have the capacity to discern? And the answer, obviously, is the Word of God. If you go over to chapter 2 of Philippians, go to verse um, 16. Look what Paul talks about right there. He talks about Well, I'll read it from verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. See, there's the foundation of it all. Holding fast to the word of life. You got two cultures. You got the darkness and you got the light. And how is it that the light continues to shine bright in a dark, corrupt, crooked generation? We hold fast, we hold tenaciously, we hold tightly. We do not let go of our commitment to the Word of God. And as soon as we do, we are lost in a a morass of moral foolishness and questioning. Our only anchor... Our only anchor is the inerrant, inspired word of the living God. And from it, we discern knowledge. We have all discernment because God has revealed it to us in the pages of this book. So you can't trust yourself. The emotion of love, the inclination to tolerance, the desire to put your arms around everybody and have uh, kumbaya hugs so that everybody feels okay. You can't trust yourself. The only way we know, the only way we know with certainty is if we root ourselves in the unchanging, inerrant, inspired word of the living God. And so Christians are people who look to this with a humility it says this is the word of life 
doesn't tell me everything I need to know about God and doesn't answer everything about where the dinosaurs went and tons of other questions. But it does tell me everything I need to know from God's vantage point. God has not withheld one thing from me in this book that I need to know. It is my foundation for life and godliness. And it defines what I accept and love and what I reject and repudiate. So, do you allow the word of God that place in your life? In a culture that is just seething with confusion, moral relevancy, does the word of God have that place in your heart? Is that where you find knowledge and all discernment that shapes and focuses how you love, how you accept and bless and how you repudiate and reject? If it is, the Spirit of God has created that confidence in you that you will build the moral foundation of your life on it, then yeah, be confident. Have absolute assurance that God has saved you. Because he doesn't give that assurance to anyone except that they are filled with his Holy Spirit and saved people. And then lastly, he speaks about the righteousness of Christ. He says in verse 10, so that you may, I want you to have this knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve, that you may test. It's the same word from, same word from 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourself, examine yourself, same word. That you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. The final point is that we, as we approve what is excellent, we will be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. As we discern what is excellent, as we define it, we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes to us through Jesus Christ to the praise and the glory of God. Now, I want you to notice what Paul is not saying in this passage of Scripture. The fruit of righteousness or the righteous fruit that buds and blossoms and ripens in our lives as Christians is produced ultimately and only through Jesus Christ. It is not our fruit. We don't produce this fruit. It is the work of Christ in us. It is the work of the Spirit of God in us. And this is so important. Paul is not talking about self-righteousness. He is not talking about personal holiness or religious devotion. We can't produce in and of ourselves what he is speaking about here. He is speaking about the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus taught in John 15. So if you have your Bibles there, I want you to turn over to John 15 
And I think I have a few more minutes, so we're going to sort of unpack this passage of Scripture. John 15, Jesus speaks to us about the fact that he is the vine and we are the branches. And I want to read for you from verse 1 through verse 8. Jesus says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." You see what he says? Apart from me, you can do nothing. The only way any Christ's likeness is produced in my life is by Jesus. That's why Jesus said in other places, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. I can't accomplish what Jesus expects to see in my life. The only thing that I can do is respond to his invitation to abide in him, rest in him, look to him, anticipate that he will accomplish in me that which I could never do on my own. You see, as we abide in Christ, as we rest in him, as we draw near to him, as we admit our abject helplessness and hopelessness, as we humble ourselves before him and we draw near to him in desperation, clinging, saying, God, if this sin is getting out of my life, it is only going to be by your grace. If I am to become the man or the woman that you are calling me to be, it will only be because of your mercy and your intervention and your grace in my life. Lord, I desperately need you. Oh, I need you. I can't do it. I can't. The last words that Jesus spoke on the cross in John 19, do you remember what he said? It's one word, but we translate it three. It is finished. It's done. It's perfected. It's completed. On the cross, Jesus did something for me that I could never have done for myself. The perfect, sinless, holy one of God went to the cross, having never sinned, and and God his Father punished him for my sin. My sin was placed on his shoulders and in that same magnificent transaction, all of his perfection, all of his righteousness, all of his holiness was attributed to my account. That was the condition. 
It was the death of God's son that caused me to be worthy to stand in the presence of a holy God. And when he, when he had finished it all, when he had accomplished our redemption, he cried out with a loud voice and he said, it is finished, it's done. It's perfected. It is completed. That is the word that the apostle uses in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, I'm convinced that God who began a good work in you at the cross and at your salvation through the work of Jesus Christ will finish it. He will finish it. Not you. He will finish it. But this is so counterintuitive. It makes no sense, does it? So many of us think, okay, God, you've done your part, and I'm so glad that you've saved me. Now I am just going to be that little engine it could and watch me go. And I'm going to change, and I'm going to be holy, and I'm going to love, and I'm going to forgive, and I'm going to be kind, and I'm going to... And what happens? Well, you know, you end up on your face. Failure. Unless it's self-righteousness, and you know you, on the outside you're all good, but in the inside you know that you're like a, a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. There's no hope. You don't have any hope. Just as you could not save yourself, you cannot sanctify yourself. Jesus must. Jesus must. The Lord desires that we learn to be filled with his Holy Spirit, yielded to his Spirit, that we might be enabled by his Spirit. The Lord wants to see in us an abject humility, an absolute desperation. And he'll allow our sin to bring us to that place. He will. He'll allow our sin to crush us until we are on our face before him, crying out and saying, God, I can't. I can't, I can't, I can't. But I know you can. So I'm just going to hang on to you. I'm going to hang on, because that's all I got. He's going to continue to work in your life until you say that you realize that there is no good thing that dwells in me that is in my flesh. Until you come to the place where you say, Lord, I know it's the spirit that gives life. My flesh, my flesh profits nothing. And when we get to that place, things begin to happen. When we look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, he begins to change us. So my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, is boast in your weakness so that the power of Christ can be seen in you. Remember, his grace is sufficient for his power is perfected in weakness. You notice how I haven't said anything about sin most people who came to me when I was a pastor said, can I really be a Christian? But come because of a sin. Some grievous thing that they had done or something that had a hold on them that they just couldn't shake. It's fascinating that the Apostle Paul doesn't talk about this issue from that vantage point. 
See, Jesus has dealt with our sin, folks. It's gone. It's buried in the depths of the sea. He remembers it no more. And I think too often it's our sin and that feeling of unworthiness and shame that prevents us from clinging to the vine the way that we need to. That's why Luther said, sin, when you sin, sin boldly. And then, and then run back to Christ. And climb up on the knee of your heavenly Father and say, I can't do it. And just abide, rest there. And he will, if his gospel is true, if his gospel is true, and if he is alive and at work in your life, he will change you. Because I'm convinced, I know, I'm convinced of this very thing, that God who began a good work in you will finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you those four questions. Do you boldly profess Jesus? And are you willing to suffer for his gospel? Do you love? Are you a conduit of grace? Are you willing to allow this book to be the foundation of knowledge and all discernment regarding what is right and what is wrong? And are you committed in abject poverty of spirit to simply cling to Jesus, trusting that what he began when he said it is finished on the cross, he will finish in your life? And if you are, as we worship together now, Let's just thank him. From the depths of our souls, let's just praise him for all that he has done for us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that those you save, you sanctify. I thank you, Lord, for the great confidence that we can have as we lean into your scriptures that the work that you have begun, you will complete. But Lord, Help us to get out of the way in our pride. Help us to sort of stop being the little engine that could and simply lean into you. And then, Lord, I pray that you would do exceeding abundantly more than we could even ask or imagine in our lives so that the essence and the life and the purity and the holiness of Jesus just pours out of us for the honor and the glory of our great God and Savior. We pray these things in his name. Amen.